Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we return with part two of our two-part episode on managing volatility, supply, and the risks inherent in retail fuel supply. In this episode, we look at the next two decades. Many of the trends highlighted in the first episode, and I encourage you, if you haven't listened to it, to go back and listen to that first, continue over the next two decades. But in almost all cases, the risks and the gravity are increasing. What does a degrading fuel supply infrastructure mean for the industry? What's behind that? What is the trading opportunity? And how are we seeing organizations respond? And what do EVs mean? How quick will their penetration come? How wholesale will it be? And what will it mean for existing fuel retailers, both in the locations they operate at, how they operate, and how they source power supply? And whether it also means they'll get into power trading just as they've done in oil trading? How are the oil majors responding? And what are the pathways we can expect? We also take a moment to look at hydrogen's role toward the end of the episode. Our guest is Doug Hogg. Doug is the former president of Parkland USA. He's had a long career in and around retail fuels and has been instrumental in many of the changes we highlighted in part one and has been actively involved in thinking about the consequences of the current trends and what it means for the industry, both in the C-suite as well as in industry associations. As always, you can really support the show by leaving us a positive review on the platform you're listening on, whether that's Spotify, Apple, or any other. It helps market the podcast to a broader audience and therefore allows us to continue to get great guests. Finally, I hope you enjoy the episode. Doug, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Paul. Excited to be here. So the last episode, we were very much focused on bringing the story of fuel retail and for that period, of course, we're talking about gasoline and diesel and so forth, up to the present day. And the interplay between volatility and margin and securing supply that has kind of led to this ebb and flow of producers going all the way down to the pump and the pump going all the way back up to at least the midstream in that effort to to capture and optimize those twin forces. Talking about just how inherently volatile certainly the last 20 years have been when we talk about obviously we've had the, the commodity markets themselves have had a super cycle and or at least yeah a super cycle driven by china and rising prices in the 2000s and then a longer period of low prices and low volatility and, in, and as you mentioned in the episode low cost of capital that led to other participants coming in and a new home in the form of uh, fuel retailers for the traders themselves who had been ejected from the exiting banks, etc. And then toward the end of the last decade, you know, putting COVID aside, suddenly things start to become more volatile again and things start to become uh, much more difficult to manage in the form of, you alluded to, operational risk, you know, as less investment was flowing into these markets as a result of energy transition, as a result of indeed COVID as well things were more likely to break. We've had cyber attacks, which have caused a lot of issues. But, it, you know, and the cost of capital started to rise again. And that's itself has withdrawn some liquidity from the market. And we kind of left off with this idea that BP and Shell were coming back down to the pump. That trend was restarting a couple of years after they'd fully gotten out. 
as well as those who had scale from a fuel retailer standpoint actually have had phenomenal couple of years as both the margin has gone up, the volatility has enabled trading results, you know, and they've had the ability to manage and weather such a, a volatile market. The, the story we're about to tell, though, is starting to introduce something you mentioned at the right at the start of the last episode, which is you've got a long range of degrading market in hydrocarbons as EV adoption is expected to come on. And that is also going to change the nature of the fuel and the volatility that few retailers will face, as well as the scale of the opportunity. You spend a lot of time at the C-suite managing and thinking about this. Let's step back a bit and I'd love to get your sort of overall take on directional use of EVs and kind of where the industry at the moment is kind of figuring that they are going to become the predominant mode of transport if indeed they are. Yeah, I, th- I think that I think the industry by and large is now coming to grips with that becoming the future reality versus a potential future reality. I think that you know we are just now really seeing the that hit home in terms of strategy, planning, investments, development of locations from, as you say, the, the BPs and shells of the world who've already made some very different moves uh, compared to the last several decades, not just in the fuel retailing space, but in their investment in the in the EV charging infrastructure and networks themselves, in the power business themselves. So you're 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 really starting to see the big money start to move, right? And 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 sort of the more certainty around the expectations, if not real certain on the pace, pretty darn certain on the outcome. And so for the past 10 years, this has been a point of discussion and debate and questions. But I think largely now it's it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. Okay. So yeah. And then that, that I mean, that is the fascinating, I don't think there's ever been at least anything I can recall where we've had such clarity or at least some clarity about what the future is going to look like, the future state of the market. We just don't know how long it's going to take to get there and the pathway it's going to take to get there, right? So it's really one of time and then the pathway-dependent nature of of how it's going to come out. Before we sort of move on to how, you know, well, let's start there, actually. Let's assume whether it's 10 or 15 years, is there the perception of, wholesale adoption of EVs outright or is it going to be a more like an 80-20 market what's the current thinking there yeah i think the i think the current thinking is that it's well you what's interesting about that is is the range of current thinking is quite wide right and you've got more idealistic perhaps less informed perspectives you know in the consumer market that believe this is going to all happen in the next 10 years and you've got you know certain legislative gates, you know, in many different jurisdictions, certainly across Canada and California and, you know, perhaps in a few more states where, you know, there's kind of these deadlines on when ICE vehicles will be uh, phased out entirely. But, you know, it takes 10 to 20 years to turn the fleet, even if we had 100% sales of EVs today, which were single digit, low single digit percentages still in vast majority of markets you know, even in California, in the U.S. and in British Columbia and Canada, you know, you're starting to get around to the 10 percent type of market. But that still means all those new gasoline vehicles being sold are going to be on the market 
you know, in the industry being driven on the roads, needing fuel for the next 10 to 20 years. Um, so I think that when you look at the the pace of the transition, it's going to be much more uh, gradual than people expect for for many years. I do think it probably won't be linear because it will reach a tipping point where, you know, we do get closer to that kind of 100 percent new car sales. But there'll always be a, a role for for liquid fuels. But I think the most important thing to consider is it the market and investment decisions and strategy decisions don't wait for that expectation to become reality, they make their decisions based on now that being the expectation, right? So largely what we're all arguing about from one end of the spectrum to the other is schedule, right? So we're just debating and there's not a lot of substantial debate about the fact that electrifying, certainly the, you know, the light duty market for consumer vehicles appears to be very workable, make good sense. Um, the products are improving, the costs are improving, the scale is benefits of scale and learning curve have have started to appear substantially. In the U.S. alone, the auto manufacturers are, are I think the announced investments are over 500 to 600 billion dollars in new production plants and, and assembly plants and battery plants. So, you know, if you just follow the the large capital moves, you know, it looks pretty apparent that a substantial portion of the fleet over the next couple decades is going to be electrified. Yeah. And I want to, we're going to come on to, because you've also done a lot of work on what that means for now, in this case, power retailers and the infrastructure and the management, because that's a very, you know, this is going to be a, a new complicated world with new set of volatilities. But you alluded to it there. I mean, the problem here is that capital has very different NPV models to, to the, re, you know, to that's how they make their decisions. Right. And, and just so we understand that model, you know, the major infrastructure we're talking about here is obviously refineries, it's obviously pipelines, and it's obviously these large terminals, and then the trucks around it. I mean, how long do these assets, you know, are these typically viewed as 10-year assets, 20-year assets, 50-year assets? And Because that's going to play a major part into whether we're going to have a decent, reliable, or slightly creaking, broken-down fuel supply business in five years, right? Yeah, and I think I think a lot of those capital decisions are being made on 10-year horizons. And so, which may or may not be a factor when you're in sort of standard maintenance mode. So if you've got a if you've got a refinery that's got just traditional, very normalized turnaround cycles, and there's not a major capital investment that has to be made to keep that refinery competitive and compliant, then those will, you know, those will continue to be made. I think where you've seen refineries be removed from the system, which we've had a few in the last 24 months, you know, it was they faced capital investment decisions that were beyond that 10 year horizon. Right. And and they didn't get funded and the refineries got shut down. And, you know, I think when you think about the pipelines and the terminals and certainly the trucks, you know, those are shorter return cycles and they're, you know, smaller investment uh, in terms of maintenance capex. Than, than many of the turnaround type or upgrader investments that have to be made to refineries. So those are, you know, seem to be quite comfortable staying in service. Uh, although, you know, I think if you have an, a, a situation, we've had a few of these across the U.S. infrastructure where, you know, a pipeline has a major break or disruption, it may not come back in service at all. You know, the environmental pressure is tremendous. The public pressure is tremendous. And the cost, you know, if there is a, if all of a sudden there's an unpredicted, substantial capital investment that has to be remade into that existing pipeline 
it just might not happen. So I think the the infrastructure is going to become increasingly brittle and, uh, you know, less forgiving for all of us as those, you know, very rational capital investment decisions are are made against, a, you know, an approaching sort of threshold, right, that uh, that tells everybody we're, you know, we're going to need less of this infrastructure at some point in the next 10 or 20 years. Um, so maybe I just have less of it now which is again very disruptive because right now we still need all of it and there's you know there's not over capacity in our system from refining well you need to conserve that capital as well right because you've got to make the energy transition right if you're sat at bp or wherever it is you've got to you know you need a war chest yeah you've got other demands on that capital right that are critical for your transition to position the company in the new reality and so there's there's those pressures so there's additional competition for the capital in the base case and then there's a, you know, there's a, a, a decline in terminal value when you, as you do that NPV calculation you mentioned, you know, a big sort of anchor on those calculations, certainly at these, you know, less meaningful at these interest rates, but at any interest rate is that, you know, the terminal value at the end of that calculation has a big impact on, on whether you make that investment or not. And now more and more often you're starting to, you're starting to see people actually assign a zero terminal value to some of these assets, right? Which they've never done before. Not yeah. And you're also not, and this is from some of my sort of, I guess, private conversations in, with leadership within, say, or the, some of the large majors, you've also got a situation where you're not really facing real economic competition. And what I mean by that is, you know, you can do your MPV calculation on your refinery and, yeah, okay, depending on your discount rate for what it might be worth in 10 years, you know, it's still going to make a lot of money. Right. Whereas, you know, your energy transition assets, your investment in solar wind whatever it might be actually doesn't but that's not now the priority of the key stakeholders in those decisions right so even you know even if these things look like lucrative assets which is going to be an interesting thing to see play out right do we see a different set sort of 10-year horizon companies come in probably private like like the cokes etc of the world that can do these decisions and just say actually this is going to be an incredibly lucrative space for us over the next 10 years and that's good enough right that we you know we can make enough money to make all our capital back within that period and more and suddenly not only do you have kind of perhaps you know i want to be careful here you know if it's smaller private companies a lessening of standards around safety and operational maintenance etc we might have, you know, you, you sort of end, it's what we're seeing in coal, for example. You know, remediation standards are going down as smaller companies take over. You know, it's it's going to be an interesting world to see that play out, right? No, and I think I think you're right, Paul. I think the, you know, as expectations around terminal values and sort of the size of the market and the overall decline increase in, in importance of these decisions, capital does shift, and yet the near-term cash flows are better. So, you know, it does sort of indicate that those making a, a different type of decision, and I do think, you know, you will see a period where private companies who aren't subject to the same public pressures around ESG, around divestiture, around transition, and are more lasered in on simple rates of return and cash flows in the near term, really play a bigger role in the in the business. And, um, you know, I do, yeah. th- I do think that's... And a dis- gas prices going up. You know, because we're all still driving gas cars, right? I mean, yep. that's the reality yep. of the situation right now. This is presumably a story that is more sharp and more sharpened and, and, 
in all of those elements in Europe, right, where you've got a, a much stronger emphasis to decarbonize, not least from a, you know, a cost and geopolitical standpoint. Are you, you know, are you seeing, you know, is Europe going to have a much more challenged 10 years, perhaps in the US, as a result of that? Oh, I think definitely. And they, you know, because they've, they largely stopped investing in any of this infrastructure a decade ago, right? So they are, they are way deeper into the process and the transition than we are. And they, you know, I think it's, we're starting to see some of the volatility uh, arise because of that, because again, much of that infrastructure is still needed. I mean, they have downsized their refining fleet tremendously at much, much greater degree than the U.S. has. So I think it does offer us a preview. I think there's some lessons there that, you know, we should try and avoid. Is that behind? We're also seeing a return and a rise in trading in Europe from, again, fuel retailers because it's just such a volatile environment. Yeah, I think the the returns on doing so, if they can master it, are are higher, and the need for it is greater, right? Because you can't you you can no longer depend on a highly liquid, highly efficient market to take care of you every day, and you've got to make some of those more uh, direct investments yourself, whether that be in infrastructure, whether that be in talent, whether that be in systems, you know, in all those areas to to make sure that you know your access and uh, capabilities to supply yourself are reliable. And still, you know, again, very economic where, you know, there just there wasn't, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, even there was very little thought about that. Right. Like uh, I think there was a broad assumption that in general, this is a highly efficient, highly liquid market. I'm fine. I don't need to make I'm going to focus on my customers, my consumers. I've got tremendous pressures in the retail business around technology and loyalty programs and food service investments and I mean, the, the intensity of that retail business in general has been accelerating greatly. I mean, it's a very, very different business than even 10 or 15 years ago, where it was there, the, the rise of the convenience store was was obviously very visible, but it was still, you know, a convenience store with gas. Now, I mean, the most successful change you're seeing, certainly in the U.S. and, and you know, like the Marks and Spencers of the world in, in, in the U.K., the Tesco's, the, you know, a lot of that evolution of U.K., the, the Ireland has a tremendously dynamic retail environment. The offers to the consumer are highly elevated versus, you know, the gas stations you and I grew up going to, right? Yeah, yeah. They're now a combination of a very sophisticated restaurant environment, perhaps even fresh you know, fully fresh, fully prepared foods, along with a grab and go express offer, along with a full, you know, large scales convenience offer that might be three, four or 5,000 SKUs in a store that's a lot bigger than it used to be. And all the, you know, the retail technology itself with consumer evolution of mobile and, you know, uh, loyalty programs and promotions. I mean, the, the technology burden has intensified. So, you know, it's become a much uh, different operating environment for those in in all aspects, not just the fuel side. So it's yeah, it's important to understand the the pressures and the opportunities in that business um, are far different than they were just a few years ago. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe, and the Americas, and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global.
There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. One, one other thing, just before we sort of change tack and move towards EVs, you know, the other comment I have as well is there's also volatility coming from the talent side as well, right? Because you do have an aging workforce in oil and gas across all disciplines. And, you know, if you're a young grad at the moment, are you going to want to go into the refinery business? Probably not. So, and you know, if you look at the demographics, a lot of these people are going to retire over the next decade and they're going to have a real shortage around just even the, the technical aspects of this. So, yeah, it's going to be an interesting. Day. OK, so you've obviously spent and I've watched some of your videos and so forth, you've spent a lot of time thinking about the the again, I sort of put myself in the boardroom of where you've sat and just the velocity and direction of these challenges is must be tremendous. EVs themselves. So it's going to be a different market when EV adoption, this is, you know, is whatever it might be, whatever percentage we want to give it, 80% or something, is going to be a very different market for fuel retailers to navigate at that point. Putting aside kind of the transition to convenience stores, which is going to be an, you know, a necessity, but where in your thinking, in your strategic analysis, do you think that we will still have the idea of a roadside fuel retailer, albeit now selling power? Yeah, well, I think there's there's a couple dynamics there, Paul. I think the obvious outcome that I think at this point is pretty clear, and this is this is based on the fact that just human physiology more than it is the vehicle, right? We all have a certain range before we need snacks and a restroom and to stretch our legs, right? So when you think about you know, I've I've sort of segmented the market in a couple different ways. There's kind of the commuting market, right? So I'm I'm going from home to work. I'm going dropping the kids at school. I'm I'm running a, an errand in town. It, it seems pretty apparent that for much of the market, and we'll talk about multifamily in a bit. But for those with garages and homes, you know that charging opportunity is going to happen at home, at work, or at the other facility where I'm going anyway, right? I'm not going to introduce a new stop to hit a quote, you know, gas station that now has EV chargers in my day. Like it doesn't, I, I have trouble rationalizing any time that would, that would make sense to the consumer. Very, very different when I'm out traveling versus commuting. So if I'm traveling and I'm going to be, you know, I might be on a three, four or five hour or longer journey, uh, which is not uncommon in the United States. It's less common in Europe, but certainly here, you know, for, we think we don't think a lot about jumping in the car and go driving for six hours. Along that way, we have to stop anyway, even if the car had the range. So people get in these endless debates about the battery and the range, and I'm like, well, that's important certainly, but I have to stop. <laughs> Particularly, I, I might have stopped a little sooner than that if I've had two cups of coffee versus one, right? So, the I think that roadside. Uh, service capability uh, for the traveler, where clean restrooms, great food, place to stretch your legs, good offering for the family is going to become, you know, going to remain just as important as it ever has been in, in terms of the traveling public. And I think now those facilities need to be positioning themselves to provide recharge service and charging while while that consumer visits them. And I think because of range anxiety and other things, and you know the fact that, at least for now, the predictability of of available infrastructure at the end of the trip is is hot. You know the unpredictability is high. If I've got an opportunity to refill along the way, even if I've got the range to make it, 
I'm still going to top up, right? Like I still want to get a full charge if I can. And I have to stop anyway, because, you know, I can't not use the restroom. I can't go without a, a, a coffee or a Coke uh, any longer, right? So so I think that's a pretty apparent opportunity for our for the fuel retail industry, for the travel center industry. That's going to be a really, really interesting opportunity. Mm. You know, I do think... And you have some learnings there, right? Because and if you just go on Twitter, and I follow a few of these people, like with electric cars, their lives seem quite, you know... <laughs> frantic and on the edge of terror right as they kind right. of you know are circling around trying to find a you know a retail station that has a space or isn't charged out or you know or, or it's a pretty miserable experience kind of right at the end of a lonely bit of forecourt with the one charger i mean there's a lot there that you've also focused on as well about what what actually the consumer needs yes absolutely i mean i think the the value of providing a reliable pleasant experience to that to those early adopters is very very high for the retailers because the as you say the near frantic mindset that ensues when you're getting close to the end of your battery is pretty intense and i think the reward for relieving that and building that reputation in the consumer's mind that well i always know i can go to this this site or this brand or this chain and solve that is you know i i think that the value of retaining that customer for many many years is very is really quite high I think that the mistake that some retailers have made in the early phases is they put in low speed kind of level two chargers. They were free. They may have taken government incentive monies to do it. So it didn't really hit their capital budget, but they wanted to do something. And I think you can underestimate the negative impact of that. It, it's well-intentioned. It's like, hey, well, I'll have something, but those units are often broke. They don't, they don't provide much of a charge when they are working. And you have to really be thoughtful about the first impression you're making on that 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 new consumer, right? So, so I, I caution against that type of investment. I think you have to be deliberate about providing high quality, high reliability, high speed charging. If you're going to do it, do that. Make that your impression with your customer and consumer, and and make sure that you're you're getting that positive impact to your brand. Um, this sort of, you know, I guess, cascades some thinking for me. So you, you've also got, and we talk about that long range journey maker, you've got the end of destination charging, you know, whether it's hotels, airports, etc. Do you see kind of with that kind of brand loyalty that you could build through this excellent service? Do you see kind of these roadside power retailers also owning or wanting to own and brand the technology of the charger at the end of destination as well because suddenly like a fuel pump is a fuel pump right no one really cares you know there's no sort of technological edge is that going to be the case with the charging unit itself or are people going to be really sort of loyal to, i like this one it's it's this fast it always has enough charge in it it has a battery all this kind of stuff yeah i think there's a i think there's certainly a value proposition for creating a branded network effect based value proposition for the consumer that the operator can benefit from right and if you're there's certainly a product line extension or a business model extension opportunity for those that say well i'm going to be in this business i've already spent the money to understand the, deploy the technology and the charger that provides a pleasant point of sale experience so it's easy to pay for it's easy to plug you know it's easy to find the location-based services. I'm I'm piping my. I'm making sure my locations are syndicated into Apple Maps and Google Maps, and you know all the various OEM location services that are being built in the vehicles. 
so if you're if you've mastered that, you've mastered the the, the consumer interface technology, you've developed the opportunities to deliver different offers to them for other retail products. So you're like, hey, you know, if you're charging here in town at your destination because you're at the hotel where you got to, but you're using one of my branded chargers, well, if you're headed back, you know, here's a here's a two for one coffee offer on your way home, right? Because I really want you to come back to my store on your way back because I know you I know you came here, you know, past my store. So there's just tremendous opportunities, I think, to leverage the charging networks to drive business and value to the to the retail business itself on the on the traditional convenience side. So I think you'll see uh, companies make that effort. You've seen investments by a couple of the majors in that very thing in Europe. Don't know that we've had any direct in the U.S. I may have missed a few, but I do think that that value proposition is becoming apparent. And you're seeing some capital flow in that direction, and that I do think our industry, whether it be traditional. C store convenience operators that we know well with their chains across America or the majors themselves, I think they're going to play a competitive role in the evolution of that part of the market, even at infrastructure that isn't located at a, a traditional, you know, gas station. Yeah. Yeah. And then for those that aren't in that sort of sweet spot of being able to service the long, you know, the range worried individuals, all of those, the local gas retailer, as is at the moment, are presumably just going to revert to just, you know, they've got prime land, they're going to continue on that range, that role of being a convenience store. We're going to lose a few more. If I look around my area of, of Houston and Montrose, you know, at some point, 20, 30 years ago, every corner, at literally every corner of every block was at one stage a gas station, and now there's probably 20% remain. That trend will continue, and I assume also to some extent be accelerated because, like I alluded to in the last episode about my local gas station running out now frequently of different grades, that actually getting gas to your local retail store is going to become harder, more expensive, more volatile, and all those other things that you're going to start giving it up more quickly than you would do in a much more efficient market. Yeah, I, I think that's I think it's accurate. I mean, we've we've had that trend for a while, although while those number of stations might have been closing in one neighborhood, there were other stores being built. So the the overall population of convenience stores has largely hovered around 150,000 across the US for quite a while. Where they're at has changed a lot. You know, I I I used to live in your same neighborhood there in Houston where, you know, we had as you mentioned kind of one on every corner and now there might be one out of the four corners left. But if you drive to, you know, Katie or Amble or Clear Lake, you know, there's five more been built on the way down there. So we haven't seen that rationalization of locations accelerate yet. But I do think, you know, for that, for the segment of locations, the population of those community store and fuel retail locations servicing commuters, you know, you're going to see a rationalization amongst those that depend predominantly on fuel margins to to make their money, right? So you're going to see two things happen, in my opinion. One is sites that are, as you state, kind of prime real estate. They're the corner of Maine and Maine. And, you know, there's a need in that neighborhood for a great convenience store. That's going to be a great site no matter what. How it makes money will change. It certainly, They may take fuel out entirely and go back to kind of what we originally saw with convenience stores that didn't have fuel. You know, it's not that many decades ago when that was certainly the case with most convenience stores. Or you'll have kind of the the remainder, the last man standing phenomenon where you'll still have healthy fuel sales 
at a smaller number of locations because they are what I call an A site. You know, they're the they're the prime site with the best ingress and egress, the least friction getting in and out of the site, least traffic, highest quality, best offer elsewise, right? So if, if I'm I still need gas, well, you know, I'm gonna go to the place with the, the best offer for my other needs. I think you'll see a bifurcation in the industry where those sites will actually become over a 10 or 20 year period more important and more profitable as the marginal site rationalizes out of the industry, right? So maybe we go from 150,000 down to 100,000. Well, the 50,000 that exit are going to be those C and D locations that had you know, their mid-block site. They weren't the prime corner. They didn't have a killer convenience offer. Um, they hadn't invested in technology, but they they'd existed forever because there was enough throughput on the gasoline and enough margin in it to keep them in the market. I think those sites go away. But I think if you're running the other sites and you're an A operator and you've got a great convenience offering, I don't think, you know, I, my advice to most of these folks that I talked to and you saw some of the next presentations we did is just just stick to your craft, invest in the best locations you have. The next 20 years, I think, will be incredibly rewarding for you. And I think the because I think the supply will rationalize faster than the demand. So I think that, you know, if you if you got a store that it might be a, a marginal store, but as it closes, well, it, you know, we might see 10% demand destruction be enough to knock that site out. Well, when it closes, 100% of it, the customers it was servicing have to redistribute to the sites that are left, right? So, you know, the way I describe people, if you got four sites in a market, kind of have roughly equal market share, and the one that has the less profit from other profit centers, or, you know, it's just maybe had more debt, maybe, you know, maybe it had a faced a bigger capex. I mean, a lot of things that can force the decision. When that site exits, the three that are left all of a sudden make more money. Yeah. Because even though demand is declining around them, it's declining faster than the supply rationalized out of the market. So that's the dynamic I see as most important for retailers over the next 10 to 20 years. Beyond that, it's, you know, we don't, who knows what will happen and it's a different threshold, but those are the areas to really focus on, I think, you know, for current investment decisions. Yeah. It's going to be fascinating, the sort of thought experiment of the last gas pump in your city. And and what that world looks like, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but we, that's too far out. So so um, one more question before we move on to the volatility in now switching fuels to power, um, which is we've been promising for a long time now. Um, you mentioned multifamily. What's the thinking there? Yeah, I think that uh, those. I think there's. Well, we touched on it a little bit that there is a a network opportunity to operate to you know invest build develop and and maintain those that charging infrastructure at those facilities so on the, think about the parking deck or the parking garages for multifamily apartment complexes i do think you know if there is a concentration of those around a retail site even though it might be an urban site servicing commuters like we talked about not travelers it might they might you know that type of location might well have a, a good opportunity for high speed charging right because not every apartment complex is going to make those investments. Not everybody's going to have a charger available. And even though they might be going from home to work, you know, I do think there's a there's still a, a value proposition there for some of those sites. I think you have to have a, a sufficient amount of density to make it worth it. But you will see some of those investments get made and and, and pay back. Um, so there's lots of discussion in the market about you know, generally about sort of the amount of power infrastructure we will need to fuel all of these BVs. I mean, putting that aside, suddenly, though, we are sort of entering a different world where you've got these roadside retailers that suddenly need to figure out where this power is going to come from. Obviously, the infrastructure itself 
we're talking, you know, this isn't your average sort of home circuits that need to be built. But they're also suddenly now, presumably, rather than negotiating and participating in a very efficient traded market that is the fuels market, you're suddenly going to local utilities, monopolies, trying to secure power. And, you know, that I assume is presents some real challenges and some skills that don't yeah. exist currently within fuel retailers. Yeah, well, it's, it's uh, within fuel retailers and then also uh, within the utilities, you know, and it's sort of the opposite of a highly liquid, highly competitive, highly efficient open market that that fuels have been for, for many, many decades to a regulated monopoly, where in many, many markets, there's there's no choice at all. So what is the, you know, certainly there's little to no competition for that, the value of those electrons. And there's also not just for the price of the the commodity or the, the power itself, but just for the pace of development, the investment in substations, the investment in, you know, switch gear and the primary infrastructure needed to get this amount of power to these locations. The utilities haven't made, haven't had to make scaled investments of those sorts for many decades, right? You know, this, because this, the pace of this is certainly predicted to be much faster than the pace of, you know, building a new subdivision and sort of the work that ensues in those those kinds of expansions for the utility over many decades. You know, this is a very concentrated time frame where all that activity has to get done. They aren't staffed for it. They have they don't have the experience in it. They haven't faced those kind of investment cycles at this pace for, you know, many, many decades. So I think there's it's incredibly disruptive on that side as, as certainly and it's an incredible learning curve on the side of the retailer or the, you know, the charging provider, whoever they might be, and not just at fuel retailers, but at, you know, like we said, at multifamily, at hotels, at at coffee shops, it's, you know, the places I think you'll begin to see this infrastructure become more prevalent. So, you know, that we're all faced with a dramatic learning curve and it's not, folks assume it's like, you know, adding another extension cord and plugging in and it's a far, far different exercise to wield this amount of power uh, through the system. And most locations will in, involve investment all the way back to the substation in order to facilitate that amount of flow. Yeah. And and so therefore, the same sort of, you know, I guess economics hold true that we discussed in part one, right? You know, margin and securing supply. Will we see fuel retailers start to become power traders? I know this is kind of, you know, I'm talking very generally here. And also, you know, they are going to face their own scope three uh, emissions targets, etc., the, the more simple thing to do is presumably just put generation, you know, if you're sort of on I-10 or the M- M4 or whatever it might be, you just build your own local um, renewables, you know, facility there, you know, I mean, it, to meet your carbon yep. goals, et cetera. I mean, you know. No, you're absolutely right. I think you're, and I, you're seeing a, a, a mini version of that just with storage, right? So, you know, there's providers, some of which I've worked with in the past that now have, you know, they're solving that, power challenge in the early phases of adoption with onboard storage in the charging unit itself, where, you know, you trickle charge the charger all night, all day, through any, any time. And unless you have more than four cars back to back to back, you can fulfill that need with the existing electrical infrastructure, which is a very efficient way to solve the problem in the short term. Long term, I mean, you've got cars queuing up and you're constantly using that infrastructure, then it's a different type of demand uh, puzzle to solve. But, you know, you I just introduced that because that's a way of, you know, it's not distributed generation yet, but it is distributed storage, which is, again, 
putting the re retailer kind of in the power game in a way. This is uh, FreeWire Technologies, right? For example, uh, yeah, doing this, that, yeah. That, there's there's others, but certainly they seem to be the most predominant, and the most advanced at this point. And it's a fantastic, you know, technical solution to a very interesting, you know, adoption challenge, right? It's particularly in markets where you have demand charges, which can reset your electricity or power bill for your whole store, you know, just on the on the chance that you know a car showed up at the inopportune moment and you know drove your demand through the demand charge threshold and that could cost you a lot of money as a retailer. So there's a very technical and, and uh, market-driven reason for that infrastructure to exist. You know, I do think you could see uh, a period, particularly like we talked about with travel centers, where if you're at an exit and, you know, there is available real estate close, uh, maybe you do see solar farms, distributed generation in other forms, uh, you know, cogeneration, microgrid. I think all that's going to be worth exploring, right? Because Again, the only way to create competition uh, in a regulated monopolistic market is to deregulate yourself. So you've got to create your own competition. And can you position yourself to create your own electrons? In many cases, the answer is going to be no. But I think in some cases, there will be potential for that, as particularly as distributed generation you know, continues to innovate and become uh, more prevalent. And then there is, of course, you know, deregulated markets where there is competition for power today. There's, you know, about half the U.S. markets are that, not half by geography, but half by, you know, demand and population, you know, markets like Texas and, and, and Northeast. You know, I think in those markets, you will see a need for, I mean, you're seeing this with the, the oil companies become energy companies. I think you'll see it with retailers just as they vertically integrated into the fuel supply chain, they will vertically integrate into the power supply chain. and begin to, you know, wield their own power, buy their own power, uh, enter those kind of spot markets versus just the delivered market. I think that's a, it's a much more complicated, complex environment where there's a lot less knowledge involved. So we're, you do see that start to happen. We're at the very, very, very early phases. Yeah. But, you know, I think we'll, I think we'll see some make that effort for sure. That they've, if they've got a big, yeah, problem. we're starting to see, you know, we're, I guess if you, if you take search as a forward leading indicator, you know, we're starting to see that, you know, some of the larger scale fuel retailers thinking on that, you know, n not least, of course, because money of their facilities use power and they also face other efforts on carbon side as well. Right. So but there's definitely a positioning yep. for that and a huge, a huge opportunity. But as you say, it is a different it is a different skill set. It's a different market. It's a different regulatory environment. And, you know, it's going to be interesting to see that one play out, I guess. As we wrap up, I realized sort of at the start of the conversation today, I said, uh, you know, that this is one of those things where we can definitely see the future and, and it's just really about timing and particular sort of variations in pathways to get that, get there. Um, I'm sure uh, when I said that there was a few hydrogen buffs screaming at me. Um, <laughs> we haven't mentioned hydrogen as fuel for, for cars and trucks and so forth. Where is that in the mix? if at all, it's, it's a complicated business and dangerous business connecting to a substation. It's a very complicated business having, you know, tons of hydrogen under high pressure, you know, a few right. facilities being delivered into engines at high pressure. Yeah. And I, I think the way I, one, I think there is certainly potential for it to play an important role. The, the metric or sort of the, the key indicator I sort of keep my eye on is, is the underlying price of power. So, you know, if this massive investment in renewables that are also intermittent 
uh, continues to scale greater and greater portion of our of our power gen capacity, well then you know the need for storage and conversion will also increase, assuming batteries don't somehow become free, right? So uh, hydrogen is an interesting, you know, we're seeing increasing efficiency in the electrolyzers. So, you know, the the cost of generating kind of, you know, the green hydrogen from from electrolyzing water is is declining. Um, it's not a dramatic curve, but we're certainly seeing improvements for the first time in some some while. So there's that, but there's also just the underlying, you know, flat price of the power itself. So, but if there's periods where power is nearly or literally free because I'm over-generating, because I'm intermittent source and I don't have the demand in real time, you know, I, I do think that's where hydrogen really could become interesting, where you, you, know, you use an electrolyzer to effectively, you know, store that power in the form of hydrogen um, versus in the form of, you know, electrons in a battery, and that that hydrogen becomes, you know, very portable and uh, flexible in terms of a transportation uh, use. So, you know, I do think there's an interesting future there, but, you know, that's further out than the primary conversion to, you know, battery transportation. I mean, Toyota's still at it. Um, you've seen comments from their CEO that he feels like, you know, there's, he's keeping all paths open. They're continuing to invest in ice. They're continuing to invest in hydrogen. They're continuing to invest in EVs, you know, and they're certainly a major, major player and on the global stage. So I, you know, I do think you're still seeing uh, opportunities there. You're seeing investments there, but it is a, a relatively nascent part of the business as compared to the maturity of the EV business now. Yeah. So, so hydrogen likely has a role, as you say, especially of batteries, which is, you know, aren't able to be delivered at scale and that costs that it would require to solve intermittency, which I think is, it seems to me at least sort of, you know, a layperson, a growing realization there, especially with the associated issues of the supply chain all being dominated out of Asia and the environmental impacts of actually creating those batteries, the energy, you know, inefficiency, et cetera, et cetera. So hydrogen, though, is a, is a solving for intermittency, but not, we're not yet seeing, we're, we're probably seeing a, a decreasing likelihood of hydrogen playing a role as a, in a fuel cell, in a car, and people directly putting hydrogen into their, into their order. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I think there's, you know, there's, if you compare dozens of manufacturers now, massively investment in EVs versus I know there's a few, but Toyota really being the only brand name or global player that's continued to make investments in hydrogen. I mean, it's, you know, it is what it is. I think there's certainly those hydrogen bugs out there that are huge supporters. I, I enjoy reading their their perspectives and, and learning more about it. But, you know, we just aren't seeing any of the tangible evidence of those investments materializing in the short term. Yeah, well... Doug, it's been a fascinating couple of episodes, and uh, I think people can probably tell that we could, I could certainly carry on forever. Uh, you know, I just find it fascinating, and it's you know it really sits at the, sort of the heart of microcosm of energy transition, and the challenges that people face right now in managing the resulting volatility in markets, but also people's expectations, etc. But also a look at sort of how this is going to play out over the next ten, twenty years. And it really is a, a challenge. And there's lots of opportunity there as well, as we just highlighted in the fact that, you know, if you're a fuel retailer making money out of trading gasoline, you might also be making money trading out of power in five years as well. So, but it's been a really fascinating discussion. You know, look forward to having you on again in the future to, to see where we're at. Love it, Paul. Thank you so much. Enjoyed it and would love to come back. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, 
a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.